Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Gilman. This is episode 265. So I have an update on the resealing the 12-ounce cans project I had that I talked about last week. I got to test it in the environment, which is outside, right? Um, yeah, in a, pressured, in a pressure environment, right? Yes, yes. Um, it failed. actually it did work it worked until you shook up the can a lot and then there was enough pressure to push past the seal um and so like actually the thing like you could seal it up and just like set it there and like you could like flip it upside down and it wouldn't leak at all so people who don't know that missed last week's episode this is like a i was coming up with a way to reseal a 12 ounce uh, Coke can basically that one that you know you pop the top the metal metal seal. Um, who knew there was a lot of pressure inside those cans? Like a lot. It's like forty psi. Yeah, and so but you're thinking like it's pushing against a little tiny metal thing. It's like the lid is like you know that's probably half a square inch, so you only got twenty pounds of pressure. But now it's pressing like up against the entire surface of the top of the can. Uh, effectively, because that's how big the seal is. So you got, you got like probably a hundred pounds to deal with of force, and it it would just push past the seal, um, so it would just leak everywhere. The good thing is I tested it before putting it like in my backpack, so I knew it wasn't going to work. Well, and and tightening it more didn't fix it, right? Well, I tightened it as much as I could at the get go. Oh, it bottomed out. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the next step is to, cause I, I want to see if I can make this work is I think I need to find a softer ceiling surface, something that I, you can put more, uh, it, it will grip more on the lip basically mm-hmm. of the can. Uh, cause I'm currently using a shore 55, a neoprene rubber sheet. So I'm hoping to find something softer than that. It's actually, it says it's shore 55, a, it, it feels a lot stiffer than that. Um, cause like it's really hard to squeeze with your fingers. You're mating to the threads that are formed into the lid of this. Uh, oh yeah. I'm using like a Yeti vacuum canister thing as like the vessel that holds the can. Well, right. And the, and the tooth of those threads is pretty huge. It's, it's massive. It's not like a real fine pitch thread. Like it's a enormous thing so i'm almost thinking if you were to chop off the bottom of your lid so in other words bring your lid up just a little bit then as you twist it on uh there's no chance of it bottoming out bottoming out before the seal is made make it such that like the seal is the the, the master of the whole thing yeah 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 so that, that that's that that's actually what i'm gonna try like i'm gonna print tonight is i'm just gonna move that surface down and just try the Shore 55 neoprene again and just like see if I can. You know what actually I could do instead of doing that is I could just put a spacer at the bottom of the can. Oh, just just lift lift the can up. Yeah. Well, j- well just to experiment instead of having to print right. the whole new lid, yeah, just yeah. experiment by just put a moving the cardboard down in there. Yeah, is is put something that's non-compressible. Yeah. Like move it up half a millimeter. Mm-hmm. And see if that makes the seal work. Um, Because it does feel like it does bottom out. Like, Mm -hmm. you could, like, that seal could be compressed more. Right, right. You just, you basically need to preload the top of the can into the material. Into the seal. Yeah. Um, 
but I'm pretty excited. Like it actually like did seal it until like you shook it up. So I was pretty impressed that Rev One kind of worked. But I have some. I have some. I don't know what p images I shared on the on the uh, for for last week's. But here's like here's here's actually Rev One. Oh gosh, it's got giant teeth. <laughs> yeah, so it's got like it's it looks like, like a cog. Gear. Yeah, yeah, it's like a cog. Yeah, actually, that's a good way to put it. It's a cog on top that you can really get your fingers on it to like twist it on. Yeah, I realized that wasn't really necessary, and it like it actually kind of like eats your fingers up. It's actually not pleasant <laughs> to use. Uh, I'll take a picture of that for the for the podcast. But then I made a like this turned out amazing. I I printed knurls. Like look at that. It it yeah. I'm looking at it right now, and it it frankly it looks like black anodized aluminum. Yeah. Over the over you know. The only thing that when you actually screw this onto the the Yeti koozie, I guess, it actually looks like machined aluminum until you look at the top. Oh, and the top looks like garbage. The top looks like just, you know, it's the surface of the bed on the printer. Right. Um, and this is this is Rev 2. Rev 3's got like a, a nice fillet on this edge here. The top edge, so like, it doesn't eat your fingers up. But yeah, like, the neural like, works amazing. And actually, it works really well um, with your gloves on, too. And, uh... Like you could, you can get a grip and you could crank it all the way down. So that was never a problem. Um, hey, I, I have an idea. What? Get this: you could put a small, like, spring plunger in the bottom, such that as you tighten it down, it it it's always applying uh, a constant pressure upwards. Oh, a constant pressure up. Yeah. You would need to get a taller koozie, though. Or just have the spring be really stiff and not have much of a throw on it. I guess you could make the lid taller too, mm -hmm. to make up whatever thing you put in the bottom. Let's just try raising it up, like yeah, just uh, put something like, hard down in there. And yeah, I'm there. actually gonna probably uh, see if I have any plastic, like half millimeter plastic, and just cut a disc out of it mm. and slam that in the bottom and see if that actually uh, helps it. Or you know, I should I should just put some of that that rubber ceiling stuff at the bottom too. I'll figure something out. We'll see if that works because that's actually. The easiest way to, to see if it works or not is just keep increasing that preload until like it until we realize it just won't work. Well, okay, and I saw the threads inside of the lid. Um, I think we talked about this last time, but there's not much of them there. No, there's not. So you don't have a lot of um, strength in that lid, especially with it being three D printed. Yes. Yeah, because it's a four star. It's a four start thread. And you can you can probably barely see it on the on the stream. It's a four start thread, but it's like you get what I don't I don't even know what the right word for it is, but you get like single contact on all four threads. Yeah, yeah, it's not a really good. Uh, it's not a pressure seal. <laughs> no, it's not. And yet he never designed that seal to be a pressure seal. Right. So, right. yeah, I'm kind of abusing it. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> for sure. Okay, so let's say you get this working, right? You don't know the tolerance of a Yeti can, so if you were to duplicate it, would it work multiple times? That's it works on two. I ordered two lots. of the <laughs> koozies at different times too, so who knows whatever lots they are? I don't know. It, yeah. it could be. It's from the same Amazon warehouse, right? Um, so it's probably actually the same lot. But if this does, if I can't get, it to, I know, I. 100% we could make a seal and with enough clamping force yes. we can reseal the can. 
That's possible, right? Now, is it possible with this thread? Don't know yet. So the the basically, if we can't get this thing tight enough with like neurals and like that Yeti koozie thingy, what if we actually just went away from the Yeti and just three D printed our own, you know, koozie part? I mean, it's like it's double walled. It's not as good as a vacuum, but it'll be good enough for what we I want to use it for, and just put beefier threads in it. Like it, it doesn't really need to be insulated very heavily. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you need to keep it You're from crying. freezing, and you don't want to be skiing down then and a beer explodes out of your jacket. <laughs> yeah, in your backpack because it froze. Um, oh, the yeah, solution right, to right, that right. is to have higher ABV. Although you did just go skiing in um, really cold temperature, right? Yeah, it, it was. I think that was, was the coldest I've ever seven skied in. Uh, one day. Um, here Ed Parker was skiing out there. I was like, "Oh man, this must suck." Because I'm in Denver and he's in, that the was mountains, in Denver. So yeah. it's got to be colder up there. It's actually it was warmer in the mountains in Denver. Oh, really? Was it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. But we we uh, so in skiing in Denver right now, you have to have a reservation at the resort that you're going to the ski resort because they don't want to like overbook how many people are going to be be there. Um, and one of the places we were going that, that morning, it was two degrees. And we were like, that's going to be miserable. So we, and we looked at the forecast, and it was going to be like 14 at that resort that day as a high. We switched our reservations to a different one that was like a mountain over, and it was going to be like in the 20s that day there. And it was. That it actually was in makes a difference. Yeah, one mountain over, the one mountain valley over it made a difference but we looked at like what the high actually became at that one resort and it was nine so it didn't <laughs> give get out of single digits that day that that's not fun skiing no it's not that's, it wasn't really fun brutal at uh that morning at that one resort that we did go to um for that day it was it, it actually um that morning it was still like 12 that is still not fun to to ski in Cause just cut going down actually isn't the b- bad thing. It's actually going up on the lifts, because you're oh, just yeah. sitting there and the wind's just cutting right through every seam that's in your jacket. Yeah, it's yeah, brutal. It was rough. Honestly, the best days I've ever been skiing. Like I will ski in a t-shirt. What like you go out and it's super sunny and it's like sixty on the mountain. Like it feels fantastic. I mean, the, everything melts and then gets all icy at night, so it kind of sucks the next day. But uh, but those are the best days when you're just you're almost hot out there. Yeah. So go and try that again. Next cool. week, resealing twelve ounce cans. Version two. Third time talking about it. Part three. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna get my miles out of that one. <laughs> so okay, uh, get this. Recently, and by recently, I mean a few months ago, uh, DipTrace released a new version of their software, and uh, they offer now a teardrop function on on, uh, on on any PCB effectively. So you can define teardrops, which, for those who don't know, the, basically when a trace runs into a pad on a, on a PCB, most of the time it just runs directly into the pad, and you have sharp angles wherever the trace runs in. Well, like yeah, because the, a- the trace is going perpendicular into a, a circle. Or, or like a rectangular pad, you have nice sharp 90s. 
so teardrops, what it will do is it, and it basically makes a teardrop shape uh, that, such that the, the trace just before it enters into the pad opens up in uh, a smoother angle. Yeah, it, it, the trace becomes the width of the diameter of the annular ring. Right, and you you have all kinds of definitions, like how long you want it to... Like, you could have a teardrop in, in dip trace that, like, expands across the entire trace, like, across an entire board. Like, ah. you have all of these characteristics. That's the you big want. brain. Your trace width is the diameter of the annular ring. <laughs> yeah, just straight across, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the benefits of teardrops, there's a few of them. The one that we're really going for <clears throat> is that they they potentially help with stronger pad adhesion because you have more material, uh, more, more copper right at the pad that uh, is glued down to the board. So this aids in reworkability. Uh, for us, that actually matters quite a bit because we, we do on occasion have to rework through hole uh, pads and with uh, non-leaded solder, that can be a bit of a nightmare. So you have to apply a lot of heat and a lot of heat and a, uh, results in lifted pads so teardrops gets, just gives a little bit more strength to that especially if you're buying on the lower end of quality of printed circuit boards as well which won't have as high of a heat resistance glue so to speak that's gluing yeah. that copper down onto the substrate yeah 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 absolutely which is the well, tg rating of the boards and we usually get mid-range tg yeah. um we don't we don't we don't buy like the bottom of the barrel, but we don't need NASA grade TG. Yeah. You know? uh, so another thing that that is is a possible uh, benefit of using teardrops is it prevents acid traps. Where th- these are less of a, an issue nowadays, but they used to be an issue in the past. Where if you had sharp angles in your PCBs, then when they actually etched the copper, you could get some of the acid uh, remaining at that sharp angle. Yeah, when they washed the acid off. Exactly, yeah. exactly. From everything I've read and everything I've experienced, that's really not much of an issue anymore. So this, I just gathered some benefits that have existed for teardrops. Yeah, I think, I think the acid traps um, in modern PCB, as long as you don't have like an acute angle yeah. um, in your trace, I'm pretty sure that's just copy-paste of old wives' tales now. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Like if if you yeah, if you take a trace, go straight out and then do like a a 300 degree turn directly yeah. back, that might be You'll get a you'll get some there, but yeah. And, but on a 90, it's not going to be an issue. Yeah, and going into a a, a pad anymore. I think that's right. kind of old. Now, if you're making your own PCBs in your backyard, you're probably yeah, going to run into that issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you you have to pay, pay a lot more attention to those kinds yeah. of things. Uh, so it's not really an issue anymore, but uh, whatever. We throw it out there. <clears throat> so the thing, the reason I brought this up is because I've actually run into a few interesting issues now that have ar- arisen just from adding teardrops. Because as we bring new products uh, back, or as we like order new products, we're basically going into design files that we've built these things a hundred times before. We're just adding teardrops to uh, just increase that reworkability. But we've run into a few things that I'm going to keep my eye on because I haven't seen any of these issues before, and now they're cropping up. And fingers crossed, I don't, I don't know if you'd necessarily call them issues. Um, actually, one of them I would. But uh, so, so, okay. There is a design practice that a lot of people do. I've been guilty of it in the past, too, 
that you are really not supposed to do, but it most of the time doesn't cause an issue. Let's say you have um, like a TSOP package and two of the pins are just shorted in your in your design. Great example is you have an op amp that's in a buffer configuration. So the inverting terminal and the output are connected. Most of the time on op amps, those are directly next to each other. So one of the easiest ways to, to do that on your EDA tool is to just connect the pad together inside the pad. Yeah, go go a direct route. Uh, right. Crossing, whoa, 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 we need a name for that. Uh, shortest trace? I don't know. Yeah, like it needs to, yeah, it needs to have a direct name. Yeah, it's, like it's, dead short trace. It's like uh, it's like going a uh, it's like going across the pitch of the part. Yeah, yeah. And and what's nice about that is it doesn't interfere with any other routing. You know, like you're not going to be crossing a trace in there. So it seems like a really good idea, right? Designers who do that is like when I see that I'm like, no, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let me ask you why. Why? Why don't do that? So for for me, especially since I'm in living in the contract manufacturing world, is is reducing defects during reflow. Mm-hmm. That's the and reducing uh, false positives in like automatic inspection. Absolutely. Yeah. And or, or even manual inspection, especially if you have things like black, uh, solder mask boards, like they're, or even white, they're really hard to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so <clears throat> a lot of our old products have that are anything we design new. We don't do that. Uh, we, we take a trace out. You, you basically just loop it back around. You make two, two forty fives and bring it right back. Uh, in. you can do that underneath, the uh, the part, but I, I prefer to do it outside the part, such that if somebody is diagnosing one of my designs, they can just look and see, hey, these are shorted together. Well, okay, so 99% of the time in the past, if uh, I did the dead short trace or uh, on products that we have had that, um, the, 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 the actual legs of the part don't short. In other words, they don't get a solder uh, uh, jump across them in our oven. But I've noticed now when we're doing uh, teardrops, a very small amount of teardrop tries to get applied between those pads if the pitch is wide enough. So like SOICs and, and some T-softs and things. It actually, we've seen a, a much higher increase in uh, solder paste uh, actually shorting across the pads. Now, electrically, that's not necessarily a problem, but from a uh, visual inspection that's a terrible problem, especially if something happens down the road and you have to diagnose a problem. You look at that and you're like, oh, this is an issue. Uh, and then you go and spend the time wicking it off and then you look underneath and there's a trace right there, right? <laughs> which is absolutely maddening because you're like, ah, I solved it. This is the problem. No, no. So, so that's an interesting side effect of having um, uh, teardrops. Now, I, I wouldn't necessarily call that like a huge issue, um, it's something that we need to deal with, and that would mean, oh, go back and, you know, rev your design and just fix that that one trace. No, no big deal. Now, I ran into another thing that I've never seen before, but it happened the other day, and I've made a board five times. We've went run this five times. We without teardrops. We did a new rev, ran it, and I and uh, an issue cropped up, where I had an op amp 
directly uh, next to uh, some of the pins I had uh, feedback, which was just a, a resistor, and then directly next to those uh, pins or that the pins of the resistor was a capacitor in the feedback loop as well. And in between those pads were teardrops now, where there was just straight traces before. The capacitor tombstoned, but not in the long direction, in the short direction. It tombstoned towards the resistor, and the tombstoning was strong enough that it actually pulled the pads off the board, which I've never seen that before. Wow. Yeah, it would, like, and, and I mean, luckily, we were able to fix it. It wasn't a huge issue, and, and um, like, it, it's not going to be a problem, but I've never seen that before until I started doing uh, teardrops. So one thing to keep in mind is run your DRC after you do your teardrops. Cause like your board could be flawless and then you apply teardrops, run your DRC again, because you never know what your, your program actually did. And you're not going to, you're probably not going to go and look at every single pad unless your board is simple enough. Um, and look at where paste gets applied and where like the, the, the stress is going to be applied once it goes in the oven because it applied on this component and I think what happened is the, the resistor and the capacitor got placed a little bit closer together on the pick and place. One of them went in the oven kind of face first it soldered and then yanked the other component which like I said wasn't an issue before but now the differential heating with the with the the, the traces just caused yeah you got a little more thermal load there as it was as it was cooling though because as it cooled it sealed and then yanked, yanked up it off the other the other ward never seen that before <clears throat> so teardrops are are great but like it's funny because there's these there's there's you know add a new feature to the EDA tool it's like great it'll make my life easier and it's and it has in many ways, but it's also like everything you do adds complexity and adds problems. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, so. so you got to talk about a uh, your dip trace adding a cool feature. So I don't know when my EDA tool, I say mine, uh, Eagle, the one I use, uh, added this to the uh, to their footprint editor. But they had this for a while in, like, at least I, from what I know, in the PCB layout, where you could, like, f actually physically flip the board. I say, I say physically again. Like, flip, because you're doing it virtually, right? You're flipping the design over, so you, it's actually like you're looking at it on the backside, which is nice when you're doing, like, silkscreen, and uh, if you're doing, like, a two-side design, you just want to see the backside. And so I was making a footprint, and specifically I was making the relay that I'm using on the Pinheck, uh, not Pinheck, uh, Pinotaur. And uh, I was looking at the, and it was, it, it's electromechanical device, that relay. And guess what? It's from bottom view. Classic relays. Yeah, classic relays, right? And those silly electromechanical engineers doing those layouts, those drafting. Um, I, I, I really wonder how many people have been bit by that. Because oh. it's like, Everyone, every single <laughs> PCB layout designer I know of has ran, has hit that before that landmine. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I was designing this footprint, and guess what? In Eagle's layout part layout tool, there's a button where you can say flip, and you can design it just how it does bottom view, and then you click flip back over, and it makes it all groovy in the world. Oh, that's you don't have to think about it anymore. 
it's just amazing. Okay, so I'm curious. Is there like a big warning where it's like, if you accidentally click that button and then don't realize you clicked it? Oh, like no. Could, the only thing is the, bo- the, the button problem. gets toggled. Ah, oh, shoot. There should be like big flashing lights. It's like, <laughs> you're designing from the bottom. <laughs> Are you really sure? Are you, you really sure you want to click this button? Now, I did find a really interesting bug with that mm. button. And I think I think what it is, is that button wasn't actually designed for the layout tool. It was, des- un- well, the footprint layout tool. It was designed for the PCB layout tool. Um, but in the, when you're in the library editor mode in Eagle, it's kind of like its own window, but it allows you to go from like the symbol, the layout, and then like what's called the design, I think it's what's called, but where it links those two together and you can do all the pin connectings. Um, so if you're in the layout tool in the library editor and you flip the board over and then you switch to the symbol, it's going to be flipped as well, but that button goes away. Oh, no. Yeah, so you have to, So I was like, wait, oh, no. why, is everything, <laughs> why is all my symbol text backwards? Oh, that's bad. <laughs> and so I had to go into the layout, back into the layout in the library tool, flip it back over, and then go back to the symbol. That was a really interesting, like, bug I found. Um, which means they probably just have a, like, a flag in the, where it's rendering your display of, like, start over in, with this offset versus start at zero, zero, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah, very interesting. That was. Mm. Oh, so um, I was listening to the Eagle had a, or Autodesk, I should say, had a webinar about Eagle and Fusion. Uh, I think it was last week. And interesting enough, you know, we, we always rag on Eagle and having like cream as meaning paste. <laughs> so yep. the person who was talking, I can't remember his name. He didn't mention specifically why, but in the in Eagle's code base, you can refer to every um, layer by its first two characters. So T, so like uh, TC would be top copper, like because it'd be T copper. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of them can be named by like the first two letters. So when you're doing like the command line stuff, you can type less. I actually didn't even so know that TC is. Top copper would TP be top paste? Um, no. What is what TC is, would be top? Green, I think it's TL right? actually is, is oh top layer top that layer. Makes sense. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I was wrong there, but so um, so TC cream is its own. There's no other TC, but there's other. There's another uh, TP. So that gives some kind of reasoning why it is that way. Hmm. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that's awkward. I still think it's a translation issue where it got translated back and forth a couple times between German and and English. Because hmm. um, that makes more sense. But from a coding standpoint, that also makes sense. I'm actually opening up Eagle right now and figuring out what else is T. If it was paste, what is TP? I'm gonna fact check this person. Top patterns or something like that. I don't know, but they think you would think like pace would take priority over patterns if you'd call patterns something else. Yeah, doesn't doesn't Eagle use pa- patterns as something? They uh, all have unique names for their stuff. 
TP is place, which is uh oh, that's like the centers, right? That's like silk. No, it's silk screen. Why is place silk screen? <laughs> I don't know. Ah, eagle. <laughs> T O, which is or B O, is origins, and that's centers. Oh right, okay. Um, where what where, where is TP? Oh yeah, TP and BP place. So for some reason, place was used for silkscreen. And so they couldn't use tea paste. So it's tea cream. And so you would think they'd use like tea silkscreen. Well, they can't because there's stop mask, which is TS and, and BS. <laughs> there's a lot of BS. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's like a, when you're looking at that, there's like, there was a cascading order going down that chain of like what was important to be named like quote the correct way unquote oh yeah that's like that's like that uh the, i can't remember the stand-up comedian he's he's got a whole bit about uh the uh the abbreviations for the states where they're like oh this is going to be easy alabama al and then they're like cool let's go to the next one alaska shit <laughs> 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 yeah, that's exactly. They like, were like, like, oh yes, top TS or BS, perfect, right? The next right. one's is pace shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, actually, great. what's funny is the 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 bottom or, or just sort of like the reverse view stuff in, in dip trace. I feel like there's sort of a, a parallel with that where they're like, oh, okay, well, we need to be able to look at the bottom. So they they have a, a like a, a menu option that's just called mirror. So doesn't matter what layer you're on, you can mirror your board. So that can be confusing because if you don't know that you mirrored it, then it'll just always be in mirrored mode. Now, here's the thing. In mirror mode, it still keeps the text on the top layer like correctly readable, but on the bottom layer, everything will be flipped. So there's another function in there that's called flip text automatically. So if you have that engaged and then you engage your mirror, then if you're looking at the bottom, it's like real world where you're looking at yeah, the bottom. Yeah, actually, also- you're physically flipping the board. Right, you're physically yeah. flipping the board, right? Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. you can you can work on the board however it's it's convenient because it's nice when you want to actually measure things or you're doing mechanical style things but i realize there's like four worlds there's like the correct one where you're looking at the top then there's the bottom one where you're looking incorrectly then there's the top one where you're looking incorrectly and then there's the bottom one where you're looking correctly so it's (laughs) like it's like and none of these like all of these are things where if you get yourself into them, it's up to you to get out of them. Yeah. So yeah. you could be on the bottom layer working mirrored and then screw things up, you know? Yep. yep, yep. But I, I guess that's all EDA tools. Like you could screw it up however you want to. Ah. <laughs> uh, so um, this is building off our last month of discussion here. And it is. An interesting article that I read um, a couple days ago called Car Makers Wake Up to New Pecking Order as Chip Crunch Intensifies. Well, that's clickbait as, as hell. But um, <laughs> Chip Crunch. So, yeah, this is uh, it's actually almost a direct follow up from our discussion last week, which is the auto industry shutting down uh, like pickup truck production from lack of electrical components. 
Um, and so right now it's like the chip manufacturer. Let me stop you right there. Like, isn't that funny? Like a pickup truck, which like is like doesn't like I think of like old pickup truck that doesn't feel very electrical. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go work on the farm. Like it's getting crippled from electronic components. Yeah, the supply chain. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it, this is getting to the point where like the automakers are pointing fingers and the chip manufacturers are pointing fingers back. It's like that Spider-Man meme. Oh yeah. Um, and so basically what's happening is like the automakers are like, why aren't you wrapping up or uh, ramping up production fast enough for us? And chip makers are like, you dude, y'all like cut production. Like the moment sales slump, like, like drop all our sales immediately. Yeah. They, they, they run scared. Yeah. Um, so chip makers are basically saying, well, if you like agree to like year long contracts and actually buy the stuff, then yeah, we'll ramp it up. And automakers are like, no, we're not doing that. Um, hey, it was like when we talked with Chris Carter, why don't you just buy all the stuff like a year in advance, right? Exactly. <laughs> that Amazing how that works for supply chain. <laughs> um, so for the longest time, Auto, the auto industry was like almost like the center of attention for the chip and electrical component manufacturers. Like there's a whole standards on auto, uh, um, what is it? Uh, AEQ, whatever, the standard for like resistors, automotive parts, oh, yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Um, where you know like, okay, if I, if I buy one of these parts that is certified, it's going to be a decent part. Most of the time. Um, so what's interesting is what's happening now is the auto industry is being left in the dust by all the other consumer electronics and, and technology companies in terms of how much volume they're buying and how far behind they are in the tech world. Because so the, the auto industry spends about $40 billion a year on integrated components sounds like a lot apple spends more than that on their iphone chips <laughs> you're talking wait the entire auto industry the entire auto industry only spends i say only it's still a lot of money 40 billion dollars okay yeah apple spends more on chips just to make iphones for their one product for one product line yeah. so that puts in comparison that the auto industry actually doesn't buy a lot of integrated components because most of the time the chips used in auto and the automotive industry are older parts uh, and more basic components. They're not leading edge semiconductors that are going into your phones that are basically like, I mean, every single like eight months, there's a new phone that you have to go buy, right? Pixel sure. 532 now. <laughs> right. Um, Actually, I'm super excited because I just paid off my phone and uh, and my wife paid off her phone and my bill just like went, it just plummeted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I'm so kick. I I have a Pixel two that I paid off a couple years ago and I like refuse to buy a new phone because I'm like this one's paid off. It works perfectly fine. As yeah. like the USB plug won't go into it. <laughs> <laughs> There's too much like finger cheese and, and grime oh, in there. Uh, grease probably. Yeah, probably. Um. So what's happening is because the auto industry is using older microcontrollers, more basic components, that kind of stuff, chip fabs are, since they're being crunched for production, they're prioritizing 
higher margin parts, which are the leading edge components that like Apple want and Samsung and Sony want. Like these older microcontrollers aren't going into PlayStation 5s. They're not going into the latest Xbox or, or Nintendo or iPhone. So they get kind of just get, getting pushed down the assembly line because they're not high margin components anymore. Um, it's kind of an interesting way to think about it is basically like they're being op- these components are being obsoleted not because they're bad parts or old parts, but because they're just the margins on the on them are not high enough. Hmm. Well, okay. I wonder the though. Like, okay, are they purchasing the margins are not more, but are they purchasing more parts? Are they just high runners? I would I would assume so. Which 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 components? The components that go into automotive. Well, they're they're typically simpler components. Yeah, right. But but and lower and, end microcontrollers. They're probably purchasing a lot more than. Well, clearly not with the only spending forty billion a whole year. But what I'm saying, if it's forty billion, it could be forty billion of really cheap parts. So it would be a ton of them. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Well. So a lot of these components are actually not even like let's say they're uh, they're buying a TI microcontroller. This is just, I'm just making this up right now. Say they're buying a TI microcontroller. We don't we don't even use TI. We we'll use uh um let's come up with an IC company. Um, Tasty Chips ICs. Like uh, so Tasty Chips ICs has got this microcontroller that Ford wants right, and Ford's one of the ones that can't make. F-150s for some reason right now because they can't get the parts. Um, And so for these like low margin parts, a lot of times these chip manufacturers are fabbing it out to like a third party fab because they want their their lines. They want the high margin stuff on and because they can control the processes better and all that stuff. But like, oh, it's older, older chip technology. We can make that anywhere. Right. Um, And so they're they're pushing that off on these other fabs. Well, those other fabs are like, but well, we can make like the high end parts that are going into like these graphics cards that no one can buy right now as well. Um, and so that that's basically we're just running into a problem where no one wants to build like the low margin, like simple products anymore for chips. Mm. I want to make a company. They want called- all the fancy FPGAs. Yes. I want some tasty chips right now. But um, so on semi, which is one of the um, fabricators that is uh, having problems with their with their um, supply chain right now, it says third quarter this year is their estimate to be back on track Hmm. as they scale back up. So, well, others, I think T.I. said they don't have any problems because they just like banked a bunch of semiconductor material. So they're fine. Um, tasty chips. As long as you can go to the grocery store, should be fine. <laughs> Unless, like, the entire state of Texas freezes over and you can't get chips. Oh, my gosh. I've been seeing the, the images of the grocery stores, and they're just, there's nothing on the shelf. It's shelter. not bad. as bad as it was during the beginning of COVID. Like, the beginning okay. of COVID, like, there was nothing in my local grocery stores. Now, it's, right now, it's just like, oh, you can't get, like, peanut butter. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It's not as bad as... as and Twinkies. 
<laughs> the stuff that lasts forever. Oh, bottled water was was out as well. For well, some that, reason, though, you think like beer would be all sold out. They had tons of beer. <laughs> well, then Barker's good to go. Yeah, I was good to go. Liquid calories. Liquid bread. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> so I got a cool op amp that I want to show off. Um, I've been I've been doing some new uh, component searching for a new design, and I is ran a, into is it a tasty op amp? Uh, tasty instruments. Tasty. That's instruments. that's who makes the uh, what the tasty chip. Uh, actually, if we ever make a semiconductor company, it needs to be Tasty Instruments. Tasty Instruments, <laughs> absolutely. Like it, this is done. So no, uh, so Texas Instruments has uh, this this pretty cool op amp that I found, and I, I just wanted to showcase it because they label it as a general purpose op amp, and I guess it does fit that. But my definition of general purpose op amp is, I guess, my my uh, bar of excellence is way lower than theirs for general purpose because to me i'm reading the specs on the data sheet and i'm not just reading the marketing wank on the first page uh i'm like like going actually into it it's like man this op amp is is awesome uh so these are the uh the tov 915 series it comes in the 915 one two and four for one two and four uh package op amps so of the uh the the a dual and the quad um have are totally reasonably priced there about uh 35 cents for the dual in quantity and 52 cents uh for the quad in quantity so they're they're a bit more expensive than you know my version of a of a general purpose op amp but uh this is crazy so let me just run through a handful of the specs on this because virtually every spec of this op amp is like not just like one or two times better than the op amps I normally use. It's like 10 times better than the op amps that I use. So the offset is uh, just the, the typical offset is 125 microvolts, which is pretty awesome because like a regular TL07 or TL08 series op amp has like three to seven millivolts, which if you're trying to do anything precision whatsoever, like that, you're starting to get into game over territory, especially once you apply gain to that, like you're just guaranteed to have stuff all over the place so typical is 125 microvolts on this thing and it, it that increases to 780 microvolts max across temperature which it's not even a full millivolt across temperature and across units um which is pretty awesome it also has an input bias and an input offset current of only 10 pico amps uh which is pretty awesome so if you're looking for something to be a good like voltage reference this is an excellent op amp because uh, you have such low input bias and only 125 microvolt uh, offset. Like you can be fairly confident that your output is going to be a lot closer than using like a TLO style op amp. So, you know, splurge a little bit, pay pay a little bit more for an op amp like this, and uh, you'll get a you'll get like five six times the accuracy out of an op amp like this for a little bit more in cost. Um, so the thing is, it has a lower power rail. Like the TLOs can handle uh, 36 volts, whereas this can only handle 20 volt max, and it's kind of recommended more for 16 volt. <clears throat> so it, you're, if your system runs on plus minus 12 volts, then um, it ain't going to work for you. But if you can run this on something like plus minus 5 volts, you get a ton of extra uh, added benefits from doing this because this is also both input and output rail to rail op amp with some pretty awesome 
uh, specs on that. So with like the full honest to God 16 volt power into a 2K load, you can swing to within 250 millivolts of the rails, which is pretty awesome. And if you use less than 16 volts, if you use closer to like three to five volts, you can actually get within just a few, like less than 10 millivolts to the rails. So this thing starts to become way more of an ideal op amp uh, at lower power, which if you have a low power situation um, that you need an op amp for, this thing is actually pretty good too because it has really low <clears throat> uh, uh, power uh, quiescent current. So it's uh, 750 microamps maximum across temperature for each channel of the op amp. So you could use this. I mean, that's not like the most amazing. You can go lower than that. But in general, um, for a, quote, general purpose op amp, 750 microamps max is not half bad for low power uh, application. On top of that, in the single package, it has uh, an extra pin that allows you to do shutdown. So hmm. uh, if you need an analog op amp that you can send a digital signal to and shut it down, it'll drop to like nothing um, uh, input current. I can't remember what it is. It's like 40 uh, microamps or something less than that. So you could use this also as an analog switch with a digital system on there. So all of those features to me are like, this is not general purpose. This thing is pretty awesome, if you ask me. Like, yeah, it's got you some can get like precision. It's got good gain. It has uh, a 4.5 megahertz gain bandwidth product and a 20, what is it, 20 volt per microsecond slew rate. So like overall, it has like all the characters I want at characteristic at, I want out of it. It's just a little bit more expensive and it has lower power uh, rails. So I can't run it off of like my big power rails, but I've started using regulated lower rails for most of my stuff to reduce on heat consumption. Uh, because <laughs> I've been realizing a lot of my new designs just they just cook because <laughs> I'm using I'm using op amps that run on 24 volts yeah. and their 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 quiescent current is you know in the millivolts range. Well, if you start adding 20, 30, 40 op amps in that much, you start burning a watt and a half, two, three watts of just pure heat. So if you could just regulate your rails down and have lower quiescent current, your heat generation just goes to virtually nothing. And one of the reasons why that's always kind of been out of reach for my designs is because I don't, um, uh, you need good rail to rail application for that or rail to rail <clears throat> output. Well, this thing can get within a few millivolts of the, of the rails. So I can reduce my power supply rails, reduce my current consumption, and therefore reduce the heat generated in my stuff because all of the new designs are not getting simpler. They need more parts. So um, that's sort of the genesis of how this came about. Like we had a product where it's like, okay, this thing works great. It's way too hot. So uh, we need to find a better op amp. And luckily I stumbled across, um, across this. Hi. That's, that's actually very interesting because um, I might be using some op amps in that octo... Uh, temperature reader Jeep thing. So I might actually look into those um, to be used because I need to like buffer stage uh, analog inputs. Oh, yeah. This this yeah. is great, especially because of the low offset on that. Yep. Yeah. Just make sure to protect your inputs. Yes. But um, I, what, my question with these are, so the ones that are multiple, 
do they have a spec on like how close they are regulated to each other or no? Because I bet you they're not like paired op amps in there. No, but they do have like crosstalk um, okay. specifications. Um, I don't remember what it's. I think it was negative 110 dB uh, crosstalk. <clears throat> nothing to worry about then. Well, and most of your signals on on that thing are really slow. Anyway. Yes. So, uh, I mean, yeah, in in the in the multiples, they I mean they share power, but they're gonna they're independent. I mean, they share the die and they share power. Yeah, I'm assuming what they're doing is they cut like for the quad, they cut four out of the out of the wafer and stick that in a package. Well, I mean, typically they do it. They do a quad on a single die. Yeah, as I'm saying, it's a single die, but it's yeah, the yeah, same yeah. that wafer. They're cutting that wafer into singles, doubles, and quads. Oh, yeah. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe they manufacture singles, doubles, and quads separately. But regardless, yes, we're, we're basically saying the same thing. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Actually, Dude, the one thing that kind of sucks about this is, uh, so all the, the big players like Mauser and DigiKey carry these, but the only people who right now distribute the TSOP package is TI Direct. Huh. Uh, which I use TSOP for most of my op amp packages, uh, mainly because uh, all it's of smaller. my op amp packages are TSOP. So if I ever need to swap things or put new ones on, they're they're easy to do. But this, you know, the, also the TSOP is the cheaper package out of all of them. But these do come in um, some other convenient packages too. It's just I have like a specific, yeah, like all my designs use the TSOPs. So I have a, this is kind of a deviation from what we normally talk about, but cyber, so I've been playing a game called Cyberpunk 2077. Um, I really need to get back to it because it's like, I haven't played it in like two weeks. But um, so in that game, uh, all the vehicles, this is in the year 2077, alternate future, I guess technically saying alternate future doesn't make any sense because the future hasn't happened yet. Um, regardless, one potential future. One potential future in this that this game takes place in. Um, they use a synthetic gasoline made but from uh, genetically modified wheat. Okay, for gasoline. <laughs> so so wait 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 wait. So the cars just run on beer. Ba- almost, but it's actually gasoline. It's like a synthetic gasoline. <laughs> so it's more closer to the gasoline than alcohol. Okay, you okay. need to brew a beer. That's called Cyberpunk Synthetic Gasoline. Well, it's actually got a better name. It's called Chew 2. <laughs> okay. Because that's like the beginning of like the molecular formula for it. Okay. Okay. So earlier this week, Porsche announced that they came up with a synthetic fuel that basically replicates what Chew 2 does. It probably doesn't have, it's not made from like genetically modified wheat. It's like it's synthetic gasoline. But. So um, basically what they did is they took, they're making the synthetic gasoline. And so gasoline usually has uh, 30 to 40 different components in it. And it's composed of medium-ish chains of hydrocarbons. So what they made is they made a, a, a hydrocarbon fluid. I, I don't have a name for it. We'll call it Porsche, Porsche gas, right? Uh, the synthetic gas that only has... Eight to ten components in it, so it's. Well, no, they do have a name for it. They call it e fuel. E fuel. That there you go. Oh man, that's marketing right there. Yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, e fuel is uh, has eight to ten components in it, and and it's 
I'm guessing based on what they say it does, it has shorter chains of hydrocarbons. Because when you have a, if you have a more pure fuel or pure hydrocarbon that has shorter chains, like the shortest that you can get is like methane for hydrocarbon. I think it's actually is the shortest, it might be. That's like natural gas that you get for like cooking. When you burn shorter chains, uh, you get less byproducts. You basically like the best you would get is like you get water vapor and CO2. And you get less CO2, the shorter the chain is as well. Um, but so because of what they're saying here is basically they're getting like almost no NOx, which is nitrous oxide, and which produces smog. Um, and they're getting very few particulate matter. Um, this is a very refined, like technically you could refine gasoline into probably making something similar to this. It just wouldn't be like economically feasible. So it's easier to just make it from scratch. Um, it's kind of why like synthetic oils are typically cleaner and longer lasting than uh, conventionally oil, uh, conventional oil. Anyways, you know, uh, interesting story. I, um, a buddy of mine, his father is a uh, chemical engineer. And I, I remember talking to him one day because he was an engineer that worked um he had it, basically they they had a contract firm and uh, synthetic oil companies would send them a request and mm-hmm. uh, Royal Purple was one of the uh, people that sent him a request to I don't know create whatever their their oil was and you their know base, how like based yeah off. Their, their base and and you know how I don't know Royal Purple is is heralded as as something special right and and this guy was saying like I he's a he's a chemical engineer he's not an automotive guy he's like I don't know the performance boost he's like I've heard Royal Purple is what is popular what I can tell you is uh Royal Purple's uh, like hydrocarbon requirements in terms of the length of their chain are like two or three times as long as most other people that they get requests from so there is something different there that's why I run. I run purple, roll purple in my vehicles. Yeah. Um, it tends to, what I've noticed, so the, we're now we're getting anatomical evidence for engine oil now for cars, but <laughs> um, it, it uh, holds up on viscosity longer, which makes sense on your end. If you said it has two or three times longer chains, yep. that would mean it's holding it, that a longer chain will hold its viscosity longer. Um, so going back to fuel. So what does having shorter chains in your fuel mean? Um, it means you actually get a reduction in CO2 and you get a reduction in particulate and you get reduction in NOx. And um, it's estimated, basically Porsche is saying that a running their, an engine on, and this is a fuel that they can run in any currently operating gasoline powered engine. So it's, it's definitely not an alcohol. So, cause like if you run, you can't run a, a normal car right now on like what's called E85, mm-hmm. which is ethanol content 85%, um, and then 15% gasoline. Most of the time, when you go to a gas gas station here in America, uh, you're buying E10, so it's 10% ethanol. Mm-hmm. And then there's some places you can get what's called E0 or 100% gas, um, which is harder to get now. You pretty much have to go into the boonies to to buy that stuff. Um, so anyways, this stuff burns in normal cars, so it's not an alcohol based, uh, gasoline. It's, they're saying it can burn in anything, but running a car on this 
reduces the CO2 output by 85%. That's ridiculous. Because of the shorter chains, which actually, when you do the lifespan impact of a vehicle running on this versus the lifespan impact of an electric car, it actually works out to be the same CO2 footprint now. I wonder if they're including the manufacturing of the car. They are including in the manufacturing of the cars. Because okay. that's that's the big thing. Because um, that's like one of the arguments people will make against electric cars. Like, oh, you're still putting it on the grid and running it off natural gas powered power plants and stuff like that. I'm like, well, natural gas, fossil fuels being burned in the electrical plant, they get a much higher yield on their energy input versus output. Your internal combustion engine in your car is only getting like maybe 35% efficiency out of turning hydrocarbon into rotational energy that moves your car forward. Most of it is heat and noise. Now, really cool noises, but noise. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's like somewhere around 5% really cool noise. Yeah, 5% of that, of that energy loss is cool noises, right? <laughs> um, so, that, so that's an interesting... Um, a very interesting um so yeah i i i, I uh that's not what i'm getting at here i'm not getting that electrical vehicles bad because they are pulling off fossil fuels off a grid um because that's the thing is move you can move a power plant to like the middle of nowhere where it can like pollute a little bit and be fine but having a city full of polluting things is not good if if this is true and it goes forward i mean there's huge impacts behind this but this could also delay many people moving to electric vehicles but based on like a moral or an ethical reason yeah and and this is the thing is is what people need to what i get with and what i try to um preach is the wrong term for it but we'll go with that is start stop looking at like um like using fossil fuels is bad or whatever. The whole only thing that really matters in the end is how much energy you are using and your system. And so um, the majority of a vehicle's energy consumption is when it's being manufactured. Um, so keeping a car longer on the road is typically better for the environment, regardless if it's less efficient than buying a brand new car. Oh, especially getting a new one every few years. Yeah, getting a new one every few years is like one of the worst things you can do. People who lease vehicles probably is the worst for the environment. <laughs> um, but so what we're getting at here is the synthetic fuel allows an older car to be just as basically its CO2 footprint to be even less than. So if you've been using this on used vehicles, now you're getting that gain on on your your energy or, or carbon footprint, if you want to use that word, um, going forward. Um, now, there's a bad downside right now. It is hella expensive to make. <laughs> it is, I think it's like $34 a gallon to make, oh, but they're making it in a small factory right now. Yeah. And they're planning on ramping that up over time. But yeah, I do think... Uh, what on your point is slowing the adoption. If this becomes widespread, I would say, yes, we're going to have less people buying electric vehicles because of ethical, moral, climate change reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even want to mix climate change and moral reasons because they're separate things, right? Um, 
Yeah, but 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 they're also but they're also motivators for people. Yes, they are motivators. Um, so I guess in that sense, they belong in the same sentence. But but the thing is, is that necessarily a bad thing? Because in the end, your energy—if you buy car A that runs on electricity and lithium batteries, and car B which is running on e-fuel—well, in the end, they're both have the same carbon footprint. So is anyone actually even worse than the other one? Yeah, I I don't know. Like that, I mean. It... So I I, well, I will go towards on this this topic is is looking at where the vehicles are used at. So city use, in my in my opinion, city use. I actually kind of like how what some European countries are doing with their major cities. And either one in city centers completely banning cars. This is coming from Motorhead. So um, complete banning cars or making cars that can enter the city electric only. Totally fine with that, actually. Um, like the majority of people who use cars here in America are commuting and they're commuting less than 40 miles a day. A, a day. You can get by on le- like a go-kart that's electric powered. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, or a yeah. golf cart. Um you don't need a F one. Sorry, Ford. You don't, people do not need an F one fifty to go well, to. Well, don't work. worry. They're not manufacturing them. Yeah, they're not manufacturing them anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I, I guess. I guess what it boils down to is concentration of pollution. Yes, exactly. And so, I well, I I foresee in the future is um, for automotive, especially in, in how po- things are powered. Is electric cars are going to be used as like the short. Um, short runs for because I don't think I don't think public edu- public transportation in the United States is really going to take off any more than it has already. We are as a society in the United States, we're too individualistic to like get over the fact of like cramming into a bus and on a subway. Like people, I, I'll put it this way: in New York, that's fine because that is the fastest way to get around in New York. Everywhere else, public transportation, no matter how good it is, is also is always slower than private transportation or walking, <laughs> depending on the city, right? Um, and man, we're getting really derailed here. I'm, I'm liking this though because this is some <laughs> stuff I think about all the time. And you know, I I realize they they missed a golden opportunity here. Because they're calling it e-fuel. Right? Yeah, I was going to say, the name is the worst part about this. It's terrible. They could have called it new fuel, and then in a few and years, you? released gas classic. You gas know? classic? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, short trips, inner city stuff, electric. And then, um, I actually really like hydrogen. That, especially what Ty- Toyota is doing. The, the problem with... with the Hindenburg uh, really liked it, too. I mean, it's safe in cars. <laughs> no problem in cars. Um, it's, you, you drive a truck with flammable liquid in the back already. It's no different. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just like... Hydrogen just likes to make other things flammable. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, it aids. <laughs> um, so, and so I see technology like this, e-fuel... And hydrogen, and uh, to an extent, actually, like naturally gas-powered cars, as like that's like transporting goods 
going in between cities, how you're running your trains, that kind of stuff. Um, stuff that were I, I don't think like lithium batteries or battery technology will get far enough to allow that dense storage, let alone char recharging or refueling fast enough for society to accept. If you think about how long it takes to refuel a car, a car and how much energy you are dumping into the into car it? in in the like 2 minutes it takes to fill up your tank like that is an unbelievable amount of energy. Yeah, it's people I I don't think people realize how much how energy dense hydrocarbons are. <laughs> They're ridiculous. It's like your internal combustion engine is only converting 35% of that into like moving forward. And you're still getting like 50 miles to the gallon in some cars or 70. Yeah. Okay. Then you extrapolate that out to like how, I'm sorry, terrible range electric cars are. Like they're still not there yet. And you still have to wait. You know, I think like to get to 80%, you can do it in like 40 minutes maybe in a Tesla supercharger. I might be completely wrong there. Anyways, it's not, it's longer than five minutes, which is beyond the attention span of most people nowadays. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love talking about this, like the future of automotive stuff, because um, I do see we need to reduce CO two. This is uh, this is one way to. I think it was Brian on Twitter to skin the CO two problem, and this is this, one of. Them. I mean, this seems really uh, too good to be true. Like yeah. there's just this article where it's like, oh, we got this gas. It's like fifty thousand times better than regular gas. It's also fifty. Well, not fifty times, but and it's like much this more is expensive. like one of the, the one of the biggest, if not the biggest, industry in the world. And there's just this article that's like, we'll just replace it. There's there's better. a couple more articles. This is the first one I found that saying. actually kind of <laughs> covered it. I really yeah. want to see like a a paper published about this stuff. Like, like the great thing about gasoline is it's has lubricative properties. And so it keeps like your valve train lubricated and all that good stuff. Well, how good is this stuff at that? At, at doing that, making sure your valve train is lubricated and all that good stuff. Uh, is it, does it like to absorb water like ethanol? And then that ruins basically fuel systems. Um, how does it eat rubber? There's a lot of other th questions that you have to start asking. Now, Porsche, is specifically developing this stuff so they can run it in their older cars because Porsche has something like crazy number, like 70% of all Porsches ever made are still on the road. Hmm. That's incredible. Yeah, that's an insane number. And so they're like, okay, we're going to get to a They're basically saying, okay, at a certain point, there's not going to be gas stations anymore. So how do we make sure that all these Porsches can still drive? This is their e-fuel. So, 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 so I'm going to guess it's probably at least compatible enough where it's not going to... You don't have to take your classic you know, 1960s Porsche and tear it apart to make it e-fuel compatible. So it's probably compatible enough to where you don't have to worry about that. So one, one of the magic things about uh, gasoline uh, is, is the fact that we go, we pull it out of the earth, and then we refine it into a bazillion different things and they all kind of rely on themselves. I mean, like, yes, one of the, one of the end results of 
taking this crap out of the earth and then refining it is we get fuel to move cars. But every single part of that car is also made from the crap that you pulled out of the uh, out of the earth. Oh, like plastics, all the plastics, but all of the energy used to like work oh, yeah, all the yeah, parts yeah. is yeah. that so like that's one of the magical things about about hydrocarbons is that like we utilize every part of it i mean including the co2 that goes into the environment like we're yeah. utilizing that in a, in a sense but but what i'm getting at is like okay this synthetic stuff if it goes to replace fuel it doesn't necessarily go to replace all the other things that hydrocarbons do. oh correct 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 it's replacing the thing that you highly consume in your vehicles which is the gasoline which i actually like the uh we're talking about alternate realities because this is like cyberpunk 2077 but like mad max (laughs) and they call it guzzling which i love that name guzzling guzzling yeah nice yeah uh but we've joked multiple times about about parker being only one step away from mad max just with with how many things are welded to his car like he does it in a very tasteful way so that's the one step away like if you don't have spikes rusted spikes (laughs) or a guy hanging playing a guitar (laughs) (laughs) so that's from the new mad max movie for those that have have not watched that one yet spoiler alert i think that movie's like six years old or something like that now though fury road um yeah, I think the running joke is like my Jeep is a weld bead going seventy five miles an hour down the freeway. There's more weld bead than original metal on your car. Ah, nah, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's close. <laughs> hey, you you adhere to all safety uh, um, regulations, like the whole like nothing can extend beyond your car, like beyond I think it's like eight inches or something like that. All the welds go inward. <laughs> <laughs> all the welds go inward. <laughs> So, yeah, okay, I think, I think that's going to have to wrap that up, right? Yeah, very, yeah, very so. Um, <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Um, I'd love to have, okay, last thing, because um, I want some tips from people in Slack and probably you. So we'll probably pick this up for next week, but this is just to get the ball rolling, is um, I need to, so this is an interesting thing, co-founder Macrofab, I don't know how to start a business. Okay, I had like Chris Church and like other people like do the paperwork and all that good stuff. I just like built shit, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so Pinatar pinball boards. Um, I need to start a small business that just like does that. Mm-hmm. So I need to figure that out. And it doesn't need to be fancy. I just need to be like, okay, people pay like that company money and then like I get money from it to like build like boards and stuff with. Um, so it's not like people paying me directly to build boards. Kind of like a LLC or something like that. That's probably um, a good route to go, especially because it's not just you. Yes, especially because I have uh, contractors to pay, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, tips, let me know in Slack. I'm probably going to bug like Steven next week about it. So <laughs> but I just want to get the ball rolling on that one. Cool. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Guzzling Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone.
Well, thank you. Yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Parker and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. Also check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macrofab.com slash Slack.